0: we are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintenmayer. My guest for episode 141 is Robert Forster, famous for his work with The Go-Betweens, which was a partnership between him and another singer-songwriter, Grant McLennan. Started in the very late 70s in Australia, but then moved to London, did most of their work there, releasing six albums and some EPs up through their biggest 1988's 16 Lovers Lane. You're right now hearing clouds from that album. Then Robert had four solo albums while the go-betweens were broken up and rejoined Grant to have three more albums by the go-betweens in the aughts until Grant passed away in 2006, only 48 years old. Since then, Robert has released three solo albums as well as a book, Grant and I, Inside and Outside the Go-Betweens. Today we're going to be talking about No Fame from his latest album, 2019's Inferno, Then look back to one of those later Go-Between albums, Oceans Apart, 2005. The song is Here Comes a City. And look all the way back to 1983's Before Hollywood album. That's the second full Go-Betweens album. The song is On My Block. And we'll conclude by listening to a song called Let Me Imagine You from 2015's Songs to Play. For more information, you can look to robertforster.net. For more about this podcast, check NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. And if you want to support what we're doing and get an ad-free version of this, sign up at Patreon.com slash NakedlyExaminedMusic. I will have played a little bit of Clouds from The Go-Between from 16 Lovers Lane, 1988. We're going to get pretty quickly to the new album, Inferno 2019, the song No Fame. There's an obvious thematic. It sounds like No Fame is reflecting back on that period of those last few, the original Go-Betweens albums, which was the height of your fame. Does that seem accurate? It is looking back, that song, No Fame. But what I was strongly thinking
1: of was the time when I was in my late teenage years, which is, that's why you know, I talk about my mother and my father. It's a sort of a feeling that I can tap into whenever I want. And I, I do it every now and in song, mainly when the melody suggests that that's a good thing to do like it's a melodic prompt if you like and when i wrote the music for for this song it just had a to me like credence clearwood revival type feeling to it and that always sort of sends me back to brisbane and these years between the ages of when i left school when i was 17 and really when the band started or i knew the band was going to start when i was 20 and these were those sort of three years Between was sort of difficult, kind of lost years for me, you know, just sort of scratching around, trying to find out what I was doing, and I was a little bit like morose and headstrong and just trying to work out where I fitted and what I was going to do with my life. And so there's a little bit of that in that song, and it crops up again later as well.
2: the washing and my father has jobs to ignore The weekend that has come is the same as the weekend before And if I bust out and the highway is really the key Everyone can follow
0: want to talk about the choice of musical gestures here but before we hit that so this i don't need no fame is that you as a 17 year old is that a sentiment that you actually had because it seemed like you guys were very hungry for fame at that point or is that not really
1: i think once the band started it was something that i was interested in and was probably interested at this time as well between the ages of 17 and 20 you know like i'm writing my first songs I've got a band that isn't the go-betweens, that's the next band. It's sort of like we only play three gigs over about two and a half years. So it's a time also when I just had that feeling of letting things go, of just going out of town. And, you know, it was a willingness to give everything up and be happy with that maybe i was just happy to do my own thing and not care about that it was almost like a although i'm not a believer in this you know like a buddhist type thing of just releasing and i could live without it just during that time it was it was just a particular time
0: of letting go so even the specific things like writing a novel is that something you were trying at the time or is that i guess i'm still reading this into you know i'm now older and I can be self contained, maybe in a way that you were like when you were a teen, because you've sort of lost that need to. Yeah, yeah, yeah
1: no, that's true. But that's there's also a fair amount of bravado in it. You know, like, you know, I'm going to write a novel, and, the, you know, that said a long time ago, which is actually something that I was thinking about. I remembered that I was thinking about at that time. And this could be a clue to my thinking, you know, like I was going to write a novel, and it's still something that's in my head. And I had this one, it's about. 19 of writing a novel that was set deep in the past, but do absolutely no research for it. You know, because mainly people that write historical novels and pride themselves on doing tons and years of research. And, and this just plays to the type of person I was then, and to an extent still am now, of writing a book like that and doing no research. Actually, the book that I was thinking of was set in Italy in the 15th century. And I actually started it, but I didn't get too far. But you know, knowing nothing really, just the name of the cities and a vague idea of what was going on, and write the book from that perspective. And be very authoritative with what I'm saying and doing, but not really knowing what I'm talking about. And that was part of that mindset at that time as well. And that's why I sort of put it in a song all those years later when I was writing it.
0: So that line that concludes that verse, some people rise while others are happy to fall. Is that still kind of talking about the content of the novel?
1: It was just a feeling that I had just before the
0: go-between started. It's a little
1: bit cavalier, you know, like thinking about it now, but I still think it's true. I think there are people that are, you know, happy to fall and just sort of let it go.
0: Yes, it's very Taoist that whenever somebody tries to put a a hierarchy on you, just choose the lower one. Just like, I'm not going to play that game.
1: Exactly. There's two going on here. There is a wish for me to, you know, take music that was just growing on me at the time, like songwriting I was getting better. To, you know, I'm 19 or 20 to take that further. But at the same time, there was this corresponding feeling in me of being happy to fall, being happy to fail, and being content with that. Sometimes songs aren't really set feelings. There's a, a vagueness, or a, you know, you're reaching for
0: something to try and explain what you're doing. And somehow that's in the song as well. So there's really two introductions here. Like, you could have just started with the... You know, what eventually becomes the melody, but you've got this separate, you were referring to the Credence thing. I guess I was hearing surf, but I I completely hear what... Like the uh, Kids in the Hall theme song, (laughs) by that kind of thing. Was that the origin, like the first element of the song, or was that a, I've written the song, and now I've got to add on? I wrote that riff
1: on the guitar that starts it, and it's in the breakdown as well. And I wrote that, and then I wrote the rest of the song. Like the verses is sort of based on that riff. And then really the only other, you know, like the melody is, you can play the same chords over that, And then the chorus is where it sort of opens up. And and also, like, at, at the back of this always... And this is something that that I, I firmly believe in, is that melody and lyric go together. You have to match them. And that's really one of the great keys of songwriting, especially if you're doing the melody first. Well, the melody gives songwriters a feeling of what the lyric will be. And if you think of any great song, you'll always find that the lyric matches the melody. You know, like, you know, like, you know, Let It Be, when Paul McCartney wrote that melody, the lyric that he wrote is perfect for that melody, you know, and that's what songwriters. You think of all the great songs, and this is what. But it's almost so obvious that that it can be forgotten, you know. Like they can't clash, and so when I had that melody, I knew that first of all there was room to give information, tell a story in the verses, because the verses were, were quite. They sort of linger, and it just sort of floats. So I knew that I had to say something. It couldn't just be, you know, clipped images. And then the chorus opens up, which has a certain sort of, you know, it's almost euphoric or very lush for me, you know, like quite grand. And so it had to go into a statement. And so it goes into that no fame statement. So the music's also playing a part in what I'm doing. And as I said to you before, when I think of this sort of melody and the feel of the song is something that, that comes from when I wrote it is something that comes from John Fogarty. And Fogerty's just, he's a master of this, you know, like writing these riffs and then building songs that then discard the riff and then go into a, like a strummy thing and then the riff comes back. He does this all the time or, you know, like with Looking at My Victor or Proud Mary, there's just countless songs that he wrote in that style. Credence were something I latched onto when I was like 11 or 12. And that's always been a feeling that I've had And somehow that came in also with the lyrics. So there's somehow a sort of John Fogarty late 60s feeling to the lyric.
0: Well, and it's very streamlined, the melody that you delivered. I mean, especially just the chorus, the fact that we're doing, you know, one word per half note. I, don't, need, no. Then you, at least on Fame, you're not on the beat anymore. Because you're doing this through so much of the song, then you have these other places where... You just have these random pauses so that you then have to kind of rush the lyric to get to the end of that line just to provide some variation so that it does have a little more of the talk, singy, Dylan esque thing that I guess you're better known for. But, you know, for the most part, it's very in the pocket.
1: That's something that I was about to mention his name. That's something that Dylan does, which I find very charming, is that you can tell sometimes he's written too many lyrics for a line, but he doesn't discard them. He still sings the line. And it can be a bit of a mashup. And most other songwriters would edit, but occasionally he doesn't. I find it very conversation-like or very real that you try and stuff what you're going to say into a shorter space than what is there. And people normally don't do that in song, but he does. And I've noticed that, and it's something that occasionally I do as well.
0: So musically, I love the fact that it's like you couldn't decide with this intro whether you're going to lead with the lead guitar line, or whether you're going to lead with jump, jump, jump. And so you do both. So like, let's start with the lead the first time and then surprise everybody by bringing that back with the rhythm guitar actually starting that off by itself. Yeah,
1: that was something that we really had to work on in the studio. That was something that really just sort of came out a little bit more in the mixing.
0: And speaking of the progression, actually, let me just play a little around 2.40. So this is after that second, uh, after that break. I know I'm
2: going to make it, going to do it all on my own. I can't talk now. Got to get off the
0: phone. I mean, is it slowing down there at all or is this on a click track?
1: No, but I was very happy when I got that vocal bit because I had to go really down. And if you listen to that, those lines, it's almost like I'm just singing to myself. It's dictated, and there everything falls a little bit away. It gets a little bit more sparse than that third verse, and so it gets a little bit more talky, and it's almost like I'm just in my head. And I had to sort of do that, actually, when I was doing the vocal, just sort of almost like I wasn't listening to the music and I was just saying those lines and they just floated over the track.
0: And as far as the chords there, I mean, you know, you add some juicy minor notes, but it sounds like maybe the acoustic is just doing the progression it was before and that you're just introducing, you know, a subtle note here and there in the electric. Is that right? Or, Or like, are they actually fighting and playing slightly different chords or the electric is thickening the chord? I couldn't quite tell what was going on.
1: No, no, they are. But on that track, Scott, who also plays the bass, he's, playing, he's a very good musician, he's playing electric guitar, and I'm playing the acoustic. He's obviously aware of Fogarty as well. I mean, the thing, you know, when I was talking before, I mean, this might be getting a little bit off track, but the thing about Creedence Records is were brothers, you know, like John and Tom Fogarty. Their guitar work is very economical. It's very poppy and rootsy at the same time, which is a really hard combination to do. And so, particularly on this track, we were thinking of just the choices that the Fogarty's make. It's so economical, you know, like lead bits just suddenly come in and then they go, and then it just sort of stays on rhythm, and then there's something within that rhythm, and it's all broken up really quickly over these sort of two and a half minute, three minute pop songs and yet
0: you got yours in four and a half and it still sounds very concise but you did things like tell me about how the arrangement choice on the end of having okay let's have the background vocals do something a little more you know do the echoey and then have the a couple extra chords you know just the way that you actually wrap it up
1: that was something that was a little bit more musical than i thought it would be when it when it just sort of changes there at the end and it's something that i very rarely do Normally, or most songwriters, you know, like when you're at the final chorus section, there's just a subtle. It goes to a new chord. There's a, quite a bit of arrangement stuff going on there, right at the end of the song, which I don't do often. And it was something that I played to Scott when we were working on the song. I said, "Oh, the, and there's this bit at the end. I I think it's too fussy, and no one will notice it. You know, like it's just. But to me, it was like a logical progression of the melody, but it's coming like in the fourth member song. But he just said, "No, this is really great." And I went, "Okay, well then let's keep it." And also, you know, like it works well with the vocal harmonies there. And so, yeah, it's an odd thing that, that works, the title of the song.
0: Well, and it's nice that it gives, since you've, you've had throughout all the courses, the two vocals together, you know, do that, okay, we're going to settle down like that to the end of the song, but not just repeat exactly what we did before. Exactly. Hey, let's stop for some sponsor talk. First, I want to talk to you about Masterclass, where you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere at your own pace. I have talked to you about their dozen plus music classes covering every genre that are kind of like higher budgets version of this podcast with much more time spent with the figure and figures like Herbie Hancock, like Carlos Santana, like Hans Zimmer that I frankly would probably not be able to get on this podcast. The thing I want to focus on today is something else that I think might be really useful to people who write music, people who are into music. It is John Kabat-Zinn teaches mindfulness and meditation which goes all the way from just introducing you to concepts of mindfulness, what it's about, how it's useful, through actual guided meditations. And meditation postures, of course, this is video as well as audio, so it can actually show you the things. Breathing and yoga. This is a 20-lecture course. Just yet another thing, along with all the cooking classes, the negotiation classes, the classes on style, on writing, on film, so many things that make it worthwhile to get a annual all-access pass. It's hundreds of video lessons, 100-plus instructors. You can mix and match, dive in and out. They always provide course materials. You can have discussions with other people who are learning the same thing. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every Masterclass. And as a Nakedly Examined music listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash examined. That's masterclass.com slash examined for 15% off Masterclass. I also want to tell you about our new sponsor, Nebbia, who are interested in giving you a better shower. This is not some big conglomerate. This is some dedicated people who started with a Kickstarter. They're now backed by some of the biggest names in Silicon Valley, including Tim Cook. Their new Nebia by Moen showerhead is designed by former Tesla, NASA, and Apple engineers. They spent years researching and developing a superior shower experience that saves water and is anything but ordinary. So you get twice the coverage and half the water usage of standard showerheads. Right. Despite using 45% less water, the spray is 81% more powerful than the competition. So they sent me one of these. I was expecting this sort of rainwater thing I had seen as an option at my parents' house where you could use the regular shower or you could use this overhead rainwater thing, which I did not like. This is not that. This is powerful. You can move the head up and down. I got the version also with the hand unit, so you can pull it off and... I'm left wondering why I thought that something over your head should be used to wash your feet. Once you try this kind of thing, it's very hard to go back. Nebby has atomized droplets, rinse shampoo, and conditioner out of even the thickest hair. And it offers very easy self-installation. I am pretty much incompetent doing things around the house. You know, I've installed a new flap on the inside of the toilet. It's about that level. So you don't need contractors. You don't need plumbers. It's got good step-by-step instructions and video Pretty much if you can change a light bulb, you can install Nebia by Moen. The Nebbia by Moen shower spa is available in four premium finishes to complement any bathroom. There's white and chrome or spot-resistant nickel, which is what I got, matte black and black and chrome. So it's nice-looking, fancy-feeling, and it's saving a lot of water and money. The Nebbia by Moana shower spa starts at just 199 and for nakedly examined music listeners, we have a deal for you. The first 100 people to use the code NEM at nebbia.com will get 15% off all Nebbia products. Nebbia rarely does deals like this, so this is a great deal to jump on. Go to nebbia.com slash N-E-M, that's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash N-E-M to check out what they have to offer. The first 100 people to use the code NEM while checking out will save 15% off all Nebbia products. Again, that's Nebbia.com slash N-E-M. Use that code N-E-M to save 15%. All right, let's get back to it. Let's get the second song out on the table, very different arrangement environment. Here comes a city from the last Go-Betweens album, Oceans Apart 2005. Do you want to say a little about it before we hear it?
1: This is a song that really excited me when I wrote it because it's a sort of choppy minor chord, melodic riff. It's sort of a guitar riff that's inside of like a chord progression like right? this two chord progression where I'm doing this sort of little note with my finger and as soon as I wrote it well, I got very excited about it It was one of those magic moments that don't come very often where you just go bang this is great and so the writing of the song it immediately put a lot of pressure on me to live up to that riff but it was a great start and I'm happy with how I finished the song.
0: If I had to draw a comparison, it would be like Talking Heads Life During Wartime, something with that frenetic rhythm guitar in it. I assume the bass was one of the last things added. For me, it really jumps out as sort of a Roxy music move for me.
1: That's Adele playing bass I've been playing in the go-betweens for a couple of years. You know, like this is what I was telling everyone when I wrote it, which I very rarely do because I don't tend to really write stuff that I can go, this is a combination of these three things and just reel off reference points. I can't do that. But this one I could, and, and the reference was Talking Heads. And so Adele obviously knew the work of Tina Weymouth. It's got that sparse, funky feel. And the other bit of the song that I wrote, the goes on those sections where it just sort of holds on one chord, that sort of D, the main verses, G minor and C. Then it goes up to, in the classic way, that goes up to that D and it holds it, is also quite Talking Headsy. And then there's the walk down.
0: And so it is one of the most formed or inspired song by another that I've ever written. But not the chorus. I mean, it's funny that we picked two songs in a row here that have a very concise chorus, a one line repeated twice, the pushing you away from me, and that's it. You And then it does the walk down, and then you're back to your riff again, which that sounds very untalking heads. Can you say kind of where that chorus came into this? To me, it's still within the Talking Heads mode.
1: I devoured Talking Heads back in the late 70s and early 80s, and I listened to them every now and then. So it wasn't as if when I wrote this song, when I wrote Here Comes to City, I was in a Talking Heads mood. It's just that it's in my DNA. Life During Wartime is one of my all-time favorite songs, which I believe you know, for them was in A minor, but... I've always wanted to write, you know, like you have these things that you always dream that you could write. You know, I'd like to pick up an acoustic guitar and write something like The Sounds of Silence. I'd love to write something like When Doves Cry, you know, like something just very sort of four chords and mechanical like that. And so to write a minor chord, funky thing like Life During Wartime, like to have a riff as good as that, was something that I've probably been trying for 20 years and suddenly I hit it. So there's the two things. I'm trying to stay inside what that is a talking head song, but also, you know, I don't want to get burdened by that. Really, I've got my start. And then the talking heads almost sort of goes out of my head and I just sort of run with it.
0: I mean, it's interesting that you see this as something new that you finally stumbled upon because I was really attracted to this one because it sort of, to me, connoted your early chord progressions more than a lot of the other stuff from this period and from your 90s solo things. This kind of jerky 1979 sound, XTC drums and wires, that kind of stuff.
1: And that's when I wrote it, I was really happy that I'd written something like this and normally I can't really tell you you know like it'd only be a handful of songs that I could come in with a reference as close as as you know like what I'm giving you now I can't over exaggerate how much I got excited by just that riff and I've always liked songs that are based on a riff that you can go in and out of the riff all the way through that the song in a way is always around that riff although You know, like it stops. Something like, you know, like the riff to Rebel Rebel by David Bowie. You know, like it's there, and then it sort of comes and goes all the way through the song. But the melody, what he's singing, and the whole, you know, parameters of the song, even when the riff is not being played, is in a way still with the riff. You know, although it goes into a chorus, but the riff's not there, you can still feel that that's a part of it. And that's what I wanted with this song, too.
0: Well, let's play a little of the chorus here.
3: Pushing you away
0: from me Pushing you away from me Were you conducting the rhythm section to make it get that more 60s Like that breaks it into some different rhythmic territory
1: It has to happen because the verse is quite longish And it needs a change which the melody, the pushing you away from me, is not really, all, and the way I sing it is not really all that different to the verse melody. So there has to be to find more. That's where the rhythm section comes in,
0: and they help do that for you. It's also interesting that, like No Fame, that it has, in this case, at the end of the chorus, I think in the last song it was going into the chorus, where you have this kind of circular pattern, this do 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 you know, that creates a little swirling effect, that you could have this go on for another several minutes, you know, it, it sort of puts it in an indefinite vamp.
1: I'm doing the rhythm, electric rhythm guitar, which is, you know, like what I wrote, and Grant's doing all of the other bits in the song, and that guitar solo thing, and after that big of the second chorus and his guitar playing you know like he just locked it in and it was great to hear him playing really good great electric guitar again which he hadn't done for a while but this song really
0: got him back on the electric guitar actually let's play the solo it's uh, 133 or so in addition to just the really nice spy lead guitar line that is all the swirling junk that's... Is that all just studio trickery? You know, let's add a little flange in the... Okay, so that's not necessarily... Yeah,
1: yeah. That is that is very, very much Mark Wallace, who produced and engineered the record and did 16 Lovers Lane as well about, I don't know, 15 years before we did Here Comes the City. This is one of his, you know, signature...
0: He's your Eno, in this case. Exactly, exactly. As opposed to an Adrian Blue actually playing a stunt guitar, like, ah, you know, string scraping.
1: But Mark wouldn't have picked up that. That's mm-hmm. like in terms of like a, a talking heads thing. That would just be what Mark would do because he came out of that 80s. You know, he used to work for a producer called Steve Lillywhite. He was his engineer for many years. And Mark actually worked on Naked when we did 16 Lovers Lane. In Sydney in 88, the, the album that he'd worked on before, that he'd come straight off, was Naked. He'd been in Paris helping to engineer. Strange enough, that Talking Heads album. That would have been him. But, I mean, Grass line is incredible, and it's something that I would never have come up with. Like, if you listen to, you know, things like Spring Rain and all those songs from the 80s of my head's full of steam, lots of things, Die For Your Memory, Clouds, you know, all of those songs, all the electric lines And riffs and stuff is Grant, like he was just incredible facilitator of melody and hooks around my
0: song. You know, we haven't talked yet about these female backing vocals that you like, which was an interesting thing that it was you and Grant being such strong singers, but you seldom do the Everly Brothers thing. That just didn't seem to be your strength that like, let's bring in other members with higher voices to do the harmonies. And then were you dictating the harmonies to those people? Because it's a pretty consistent feel, even though there are different people doing them on this album than on your old albums.
1: I didn't do much. I just don't have the musical knowledge to really arrange harmonies. Normally it's other people that are doing that.
0: Oh, so even on No Fame... Was that you got the other singer in there and kind of...
1: No, that's Carlin, Boimler and Scott Bromley, who have been on my last two albums. They do all of that. I normally, I just sit there and go, yeah, that's good or that's bad. I just haven't got the head for it. And my voice, in a way, is in that Lou Reed school, Lennox school, or, or Jonathan Richmond school. You know, if I've got an idiosyncratic voice that is not particularly in a traditional way, a rock singer. And therefore, I see my voice as what it is and the vocals around it normally organized and layered by other people.
0: Well, and that's nice to have that contrast, you know, between the more Dylan-esque thing and somebody going ooh-la-la or, you know, whatever in the background in this case. Exactly. I think
1: Bob could do a little bit more of ooh-la-la, but that's another story. Um, Yeah. (laughs) No, I'm lucky in that
0: respect. Before we move on from this song, and we haven't talked about the lyrics at all, most of it seems to be, it's just images. It is, you're on a train and and describing the things you're seeing. And then the pushing you away from me, though, is that the subtext? Because that's not part of the imagery. How do those relate in your mind?
1: To tell the truth, not too closely. There's a very, very like real story to the lyric in that it's about my wife and I and our young children then at the time lived in Germany and we used to fly out to Australia. And it describes a train trip through Bavaria going to Frankfurt, which is what I mentioned in the song. So it's very real. And I always like that sort of sounds too real to be real. I'm not a fantasy person in terms of lyrics. Even if I seem like it, everything's got to be built on reality to me. And so this describes a real train trip of going through the countryside, going through the cities at night on the way to the airport to fly to Australia. So, and the pushing, you know, like that was something that I just sang and I just thought, It fitted, not closely, but vaguely, you know, I could weave it in, but that was almost just something that fitted so well into the song that I just couldn't get out of my head. And I didn't think it really mattered because there was so much detail going on in the verses. And as I said to you before, is that when I wrote this song, I was writing the, the music first, you know, like a speeding train trip fits that music. It couldn't have been something... Slow and hazy. You know, it couldn't have been a sort of maudlin love song or something like that. It had to be propelling because that's what the music was doing. And so I just thought it this train trip suddenly that, that we'd made so quickly.
0: You didn't take the notes while on the train. The level of detail of the sandwich maker and, oh, there's someone reading Dostoevsky, like it sounds like you might have taken some notes.
1: Like there's probably a three year gap or, or two year gap, which is quite close. The detail is all true. Like we were in a, in a compartment with our very young children at that time, and this guy came into our carriage, in, into our little six-seater thing in the train. And you know, like wild hair, wild look to his eyes, a backpack, a real sort of wild-looking character. And then he pulled out Dostoevsky. You know, and and to me, it was like that's the perfect <laughs> book you could have put there. Because you look like a late 19th century Russian novelist to me. So that little detail just stuck in my head. And I just thought, it has to be a part of this detail, even if no one gets it. It was real to me and my family in that carriage on that night as we sped through the, the countryside.
0: Now, if you're just describing details, how do you construct the dramatic progression through here? I was reading that, you know, you've got the country's black and the cities are bright is sort of a climax of the bridge. And then you've got on this flight, throwing in, it's a historic night, which kind of makes you, if the pushing you away from me makes you imagine a story as in I'm driving away from you or something, even if that's not, you know, what was going on, then saying it's historic, like, well, this means something. I'm not just... I'm describing the details because I'm neglecting this horrible or, you know, this huge thing that has just happened in life. What did the historic mean to you for putting them there?
1: The historic means two things. It's describing this. I've narrowed it down to the train trip that we made when we flew from Germany to move out to Australia, which was at the end of 2001, which was to come out and join Grant here, who was living in Brisbane. We'd already made one Go Twins album, The Friends of Rachel Worth, in the two thousands. And for the band to continue, I knew that Grant and I had to be in the same city. And so, you know, like I was moving my wife and our two children, who were all born in Germany, our children were very young, out to where we'd left closed up our home in Regensburg and we were taking this train to Frankfurt Airport to fly out to Australia. So it was very much An historic night. And I know this is dramatizing it a great deal. It was like we were refugees or immigrants, which is what we're doing. We're moving from one country to another. So it had that sort of, you know, on a train, moving, you know, to the airport, you know, all of our bags around us. We weren't going on a holiday. And so that partly explains the story. And and you can hear it in the way I've seen it. I I forced that word because it was such a meaningful
0: night so the end of the song again we have how long are we going to go on with this jam how many times should we repeat this let's add in some soul punctuation the, the rolling pushing moving Can you say a little about how that came together, and was there an eight-minute version of this at some point? Or No, no. It was a lot of fun because it allowed me to go into territory that I don't normally go into,
1: and you always love that as a songwriter. But it was like a breakdown-type thing, and it's always something that I enjoyed doing where you break free of the melody, and there's a rhythm thing going on, and you can just sort of float in and out. There's actually a, which I sometimes do live. I mean, my God, there's another Creighton reference in there. The Roland is Roland on the River, you know, from Proud Mary. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it. But the other thing that I was thinking about was I wanted the song to be concise. And so we thought this was going to be a single. So I wanted it to be, I don't know what it is now, but I wanted it to be, you know, 315. or. A- there's a video. It's a single. Sure. And I want, you know, the train trip, the train trip has to end. I wanted it to be a dramatic end. I wanted to build, and I didn't want it to go on too long. So it also means you can stuff in a lot more towards the end because it obviously gives you that frantic feel.
0: Well, and it's good that, given that this is a train trip, that you avoided anywhere in the song the drums doing something like a chicka-chicka-chicka-chicka. <laughs> there's no, there's, it's not that literal. No, thank God. Well, let's move on to the third song here, going way back in time, On My Block, from the go-betweens from before Hollywood, your second full album from 1983. This also has a kind of credency intro, but then I would say Camper Van Beethoven, but it really sounds like Camper Van Beethoven listened to this and said, let's make our first two albums based on this song, (laughs) this Eastern European thing, at least, or it's a common source material, something. It's from my post-punk period,
1: (laughs) And I was writing these quite complicated riffs. And I managed to construct a song out of it. And it's a song I like a great deal. It was an important song in terms of my songwriting development.
4: i yeah.
0: I was attracted to this one not only because I really enjoyed that little intro, but because it's got a number of distinct moods kind of crammed together. Do you recall which part grew into which, or was this actually separate riffs composed on different periods and connected together? How, how organic was this?
1: The da 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 da, which was sort of the central riff, was the first thing that I wrote, and I knew that would sustain certain parts of the song. And then what you always have to do is get other parts of the song that seem to organically flow out of that. Even if you're writing something like a post punkish influence song, which this is, there has to be flow. Even if it's quite cut up, which this is, there has to be a conjunction, a relationship between all the separate parts, no matter how many you write. They have to be linked. And if the riff is good, it opens up other parts. You, so I start to write um, those descending chord sections which have a little bit of a, the riff taken from the other riffs it's like opening out a puzzle in a way a no fame's a little bit like that as well you get a riff and then if it's a bad riff it doesn't open up it just gives you the one riff and normally that one sustain you and it sort of tells you that the riff is not really good enough a great riff will give you more
0: music. Well, it's interesting, even just that initial riff, that it is interesting enough, and the way that you're arranging it, I assume this was written on guitar, but yet the effect when you have the bass is it's boom, and then the, so the bass is hitting, and then the guitar is answering it, as opposed to them sort of playing it all together. It's this interlocking web. Mm
1: When we record this album with we a three-piece, so Grant, you've heard playing you know, guitar on Here Comes the City, which is in 2004 is when that was recorded. This is back in 1982 when this was recorded, coming out in 1983. Grant's on bass, and so we're a three-piece. I'm the guitarist. Although Grant is playing um, guitar on this as well. Grant played a lot of guitar on the record. His bass playing is also, and why they sort of work off each other and then they work on each other, was a particular feeling that was going on at this time as well, because there was, in this post-punk period, there was a great, almost, you know, re-evaluation of what is the bass, you know, for how many years in rock and roll, you know, it's just been going boom, 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 and following things, you know, obviously there's been inventive bass players, but post-punk really, the bass probably more than any other instrument came into a prominence. And as a melodic instrument as well. And so that's what Grant was doing there as well. The bass is high up in the the neck. It's melodic. It's almost doing a counter melody to my guitar figures and chords and and whatever. And that's part of the sound that we were creating, which was a way like an echo of that
0: time. And that you've got pretty straight drums except when you've got like the girl have been called names times before the, so the pretty part, where then you open up to let Lindy play triplets and things. I don't know, was she the kind of drummer that was always trying to work triplets in where they didn't necessarily <laughs> have to go? Lindy was, and she was also someone who and
1: this suited the songwriting a great deal, was someone who really cut clear and made clear the sections of the song but also made the drum part a whole. So instead of just sort of, you know, like trying to cut a clear time all the way through, we tended as a band to move through the sections. And so when a new section came, the whole band sort of moved into it, which you know, on record, but particularly live as well, worked very well because it was very, very dynamic. And it wasn't sort of, a smooth, you know, like traditional plonk, plonk, plonk on the beat. The whole band would sort of move and Lindy was a real leader in that like taking the parts and making them very distinctive.
0: Let's play the chorus. My, my, on my floor. It was interesting that the second half of that chorus there starts where you expect there to be another pause, because you've got on my block, on my block, and then the kind of prettiest part of the song is how the guitars answer that first on my block, and then you repeat it, and instead of doing that again, let's just move on to the C section, I guess. This girl I've been called names, Chorus 2.
1: And that was very much a sort of style that we had at the time, I mean, I should point out that, you know, like John Brand, who is the engineer and producer of this track, you know, is in a way, he's very much a forerunner of Mark Wallace, who works with us in 1988 when we did 16 Lovers Lane. And so John is part of a school, English engineers of this time, the 70s and 80s, and still goes on, who are very, very obsessed, um, knowledgeable about guitar sounds and reverbs and guitar effects. And Mark, as you you know, like you, you heard on the solo of Here Comes City, and if you listen to the guitars on this and on the album in general, we never worked so hard and so much on guitar sounds. And this was something that John banged into us. And so all the different guitar parts are quite different, you know, like there's different reverbs and there's different. So again, it just sort of brings this section feel in, which is also in the songwriting, as you said, you know, like it goes into the C section. Also, you know, just in the musical climate at that time was very sort of cut up, very sort of non-traditional, you know, like don't just sort of, lazy with the chorus and just to roll it out round and round and round things moved a lot more in and out changes cutting things up was a lot in the air at that time from about 1978 9 through about 83
0: well and speaking of the guitar parts let me also play so about 217 in where it's getting to the last verse I think there's a little funk disco kind of thing going in the guitars here Little counter melodies going on there. So was that after the fact Grant additions that was Grant playing that. And this was a revelation
1: for us that Grant had grown as a guitar player. And this is why we, we brought Robert Vickers into the band, because we couldn't produce, you know, the sound on stage and also Grant wanted to move from bass to guitar. And it's also John Brand, like John Brand would be in the studio with Grant and I standing there and go, Have you got another if? Have you got another if? Have you got another if? And Grant and I, we would brought a certain amount of riffs to the session. And so Grant and I would just sort of go, okay, you know, just give us half an hour. And we'd sit down with acoustic guitars or Grant and I would play along to the track and come up with something. And a great learning experience for Grant and I. And this would have been something that John would have probably prompt and Grant would have played
0: let's talk about your vocal persona here i was really excited to have something this old because it's like there's a whole different person singing than your later stuff i don't know did you ever do shows with the fall that mark e smith is sort of my closest comparison to some of what you're but it is kind of in the dylan talk sing tradition
1: it wasn't a flat melody it wasn't like a country melody or a smooth lush melody or like a hazy you know like easy long melody the singing was like the, re- the instrumentation. So it was quite, there wasn't space. You, you had to jump into spaces. And the guitar melody was so dominant that you had to sing that and get words in. And so the music didn't really provide you with a position where you could croon and cruise. So that sort of explains the vocal that I gave. I never really sang like that again after that, before Hollywood.
0: It changed with the changing of the songwriting,
1: but it, it fitted this music and this sort of instrumentation that the three of us were doing at the time.
0: Sure, there's still a lot of the spirit of that in like Head Full of Steam, you know, within the couple albums after that. Yeah, but this is probably the most jumpy and wild
1: that I get around this time.
0: My street on my block, you know, it's intentionally looking for those, what is an unexpected note I can jump to. But it's funny that, you know, you've got this almost raging anarchist complaining about the mansion that you got knocked out. But then the chorus, it gets more mellow and melodic. That the most high-energy part of the chorus, and nobody said, which is a really just nice little melodic gesture, it doesn't ever scream at all anymore.
1: Another influence, you know, like on this as well, that was strong at the time that went away a bit was Tom Volane. And so the guitar playing, the notiness of it, and the the riffs and going in and out of each other is really also like an influential record on this. Is Mikey Moon and Adventure, their television second album, which I think for a whole swathe of groups around this time, U2 and Echo and the Bunnymen, those records, those two television records, and then later, you know, bands like Sleetie Kinney, you know, and it goes on, pavement, it goes on and on and on. But these records were very influential in in two guitar players interlocking, making riffs that were in sort of melodic pop songs, you know, like it wasn't The Grateful Dead or, you know, like it wasn't sort of Cream or something. Or Hendrix, where the guitars were, were doing these long guitar, you know, solos, this was like tight song-based meshing of guitar styles and little licks and riffs. So this is in there as well. And the lyrics also have a little bit of this poetic, broken up, enigmatic. There's also a lyrical thing, which I I sort of get away from quite quickly after this, but that's also playing here.
0: Now you've got my imagination racing, picturing a Grateful Dead cover of this song and what they would have to do with it, slow it way down. Yeah, yeah,
1: they could do it. Jerry's unfortunately gone, but they they could have played this. They could have
0: done it. Well, and we get to hear how your harmonies are unison singing, how the two voices fit together before you have the very prominent female vocals on there. So that's, again, when the song is ending and you're trying to figure out how many times should we repeat this, (laughs) it stays interesting because you add a little bit of vocal layering. Like, I can't even completely make out, like, as in an overdub, just say the word girl again. Let's just say, like, they do on rapping, where they just have a, you know, a second guy come in in unison for parts of it. Do you remember anything about how this arrangement actually? fell out? Was that, again, production stuff?
1: Probably, although we were doing more unison singing. Uh, Unison singing went back to the start of the band, like back in 78, 79, and that sort of fell away. We were so quickly developing as a band that there was a lot of quick phases. And so like 80, 81, it goes away, and then 82, it comes back, that Grant and I start singing more and more together. And on this album, there's a lot more vocal interaction. Like, I, I do a spoken bit at the end of Callan Kane, and Grant sings a verse of As Long As That, which is another song, um, which we never really got back to, of the next records at least. But this one, there's a lot of vocal interaction, and part of it is John, is production. He was very particular about this as well, and he made it sound really nice. And we were sort of discovering what we were doing As we're in the studio, like we're learning off him, seeing what our capabilities are. And so you you start to sort of bounce and play off in the studio and build things. And and that's what's
0: going on here. Well, I appreciated the few songs where you would throw lines back and forth, where you're alternating, because at least makes it really clear that there are two singers and that you have different voices because... I feel like your influences were pretty similar in some of this early stuff so that you're both doing the kind of Robert Smith, you know, not quite crying uh, 1982 sound, whereas then as Graham progressed, I actually thought before I did this deep dive that I thought of the Go-Betweens more as kind of a pub rock band because I just knew the Grant, you know, fairly melodic, straightforward. I didn't know about this whole ranting style that you had, both of you, but more so you throughout, but back in this period... Yeah, definitely. And a very good, you know, I'm a very big XTC fan. So in terms of other things that sound like that early 80s thing that some of us who are, grew up at a time of post-punk really thirst for. So this is a great album.
1: And they were a band that we liked as well. And they were, again, obviously,
0: you know, like two singer-songwriters. Active bass lines, interesting measured drum parts, not just playing the backbeat, actually writing parts.
1: Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, like a sense of adventure and, you know, like willing to ex- experiment with instrumentation, but also very much in love with pop music and melody as well. That combination, they had it, and I've always found it appealing on.
0: Well, let's wrap up here by introducing a song that we're going to say goodbye on. Let Me Imagine You, from Songs to Play, 2015, the last album before the current one, which I think this is listed as your most popular solo tune on spotify you know very melodic i know we've kind of you know haven't talked about anything about your solo progression through those years can you say a little to get us into the song here
1: i wrote this around 2012 and basically it's based on that acoustic guitar figure that run of chords and melody which again all the songs we spoke on you know like there's a central melodic part that is the launch to the song and and that is although there's a like a three note introduction it then sort of falls into um this 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 chord progression which is basically the base of all the verses and then the other section the other section within the verse comes off that which is related and then there's two middle eights, which are quite traditional in a way. It's, it's quite a traditional song in terms of classic songwriting. I'm very happy whenever it pops up in what I do. I like it because that's what I was brought up on. And I don't do it too often, but when I do it, I do it with a lot of love and I enjoy making it happen.
0: Yeah, those last couple albums here, they have some very streamlined, minimalist, very melodic. Just sort of make me smile more than anything else in your back catalog. Direct, likable, still very interesting, very literary, but hummable. I I recommend. Thank you. What are you working on now before I let you go?
1: I'm trying to write a novel, which is the first novel that I've written. I've I've actually completed it, and I'm working on a draft, like the third draft. This is definitely something new for me, and I'm happy with what I've written so far. There's no publishing deal or anything. I'm just writing it for my own pleasure and see where it goes. And the other thing is I'm writing songs still and working towards another record. I don't know when I'll record because everything's just very, there's been very much up in the air at the moment. So I'm collecting songs. I'm writing songs and moving towards another record. So I'm doing those two things simultaneously.
0: Excellent. I didn't discover until too late that you had written this Grant and I Inside and Outside the Go-Betweens book already i usually love to lap up that kind of thing but it was enough for me to get through all of your albums so i will pick this up at some point well i appreciate that thank you all right well here's let me imagine you thank you much for doing this mark thank you very much it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you
1: and you know i wish i could do more interviews like this it, a great pleasure
2: There was silence Things we didn't know There was romance Where I couldn't go Please don't tell me Let me dream and guess Please don't tell me Let me dream and guess I missed the ballet director Was it Trouble, yes. Is. is the memoir finished? Let me dream and guess. I heard you went shopping and bought such.
0: Thanks so much to Robert. The Go-Betweens were really a, I won't say great find, because I'd heard of them. It was a band that I was long aware of, but didn't discover them till I was in probably my late 20s. Had I discovered them in college at the same time as XTC and Roxy Music and other bands that were name-dropped here, I no doubt would have devoured everything they ever put out. So I'm really, really glad to have gotten the opportunity to do so this time. And I have picked up Robert's book. In fact, we'll be discussing musician autobiographies for my other podcast, Pretty Much Pop, very soon. Remember, you can find more about Robert out at robertforster.net. My next episode is an interview with singer-songwriter Rebecca Rigo. And I have since just done an interview with Eric Dover, who will be my second member in a year from the Licorice Quartet, which is a band that has its roots in Jellyfish. And Eric was also the lead singer with Guns N' Roses Slash in Slash's Snake Pit, and has written songs with Ozzy Osbourne. He's a super interesting guy. To get those and my many other interviews, you can go to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com and make sure you are subscribed directly to this podcast feed. You can find Nakedly Examined Music on all of the platforms. And I'd appreciate, as always, if you'd leave a nice rating or review. There's a little rate this podcast widget in the upper right of nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And as usual, I must tell you that if you want to support this effort, please go to patreon.com slash Nakedly Examined Music. The feed that you will get there is ad-free. and includes my notes for the episodes. Now, it's February. I'm in Madison, Wisconsin. It's super cold. can barely go outside. The pandemic lasts ever longer. I have not been in a good mood. Occasional bursts of real activity, real creativity, but mostly cooped up and depressed. So I've been very glad to be able to do these interviews And I hope that listening to it has added a little joy to your life and definitely spend some time with Robert's music with the go-betweens and things will be a little brighter. In other words, keep on musicing Until next time, this is Mark linton signing off.